Hi, I'm Jeff Sambit. Welcome to Ready for Anything, the podcast that focuses on communicating through critical events and beyond. This series is brought to you by BlackBerry Ad Hoc, powered by Amazon Web Services, and the guests who join us are here because of their expertise in the field and not to endorse any particular products or solutions. On this episode, we're zooming in on communications between various public and private entities and how these groups liaise with one another when they're coordinating efforts to manage critical events in real time and afterwards. As we all know, during an emergency, the ability to collaborate quickly with all the necessary parties can prevent damage and even save lives. In the period afterwards, property and lives may no longer be at risk, but poor communication and collaboration can delay and interrupt critical recovery, restoration process or services, which costs time, costs money. Plus, all this coordination is a lot to manage for the point people who are responsible. What can and should be done to reduce the risks and create an optimal outcome when multiple organizations need to collaborate on a response? Well, our first guest is Grayson Cockett, a former paramedic and current emergency management officer in healthcare disaster management. He's a section commander and clinical training coordinator with the Canadian Armed Forces. He also co-hosts the Emergency Preparedness in Canada podcast, which delivers current educational content for those who have a passion for emergency management and disaster science. Grayson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you are wearing many hats at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be part of all of the interesting groups that you support? Certainly. And I think that's actually important because understanding where people come from is key in emergency management. It's a profession like on any other in that the routes of entry are so diverse. So with so many entry points, uh, a lot of the previous organizational definitely sort of colors or flavors the type of emergency management that people do. And I'm no exception. Uh, my background is primarily healthcare. And if I were to pinpoint where my, my entry to emergency management was, I think I I would say it is in my uh, deployment to Haiti post-earthquake with the Canadian Armed Forces as part of a United States military contingent. It was called Operation New Horizon, but it was basically continual humanitarian support post-earthquake. And there I saw my perceptions of disaster management challenged completely. Uh, it was my first real interaction with the complexities and social construction of disaster. And I think uh, one of the key lessons that I learned there is that there's no such thing as a simple solution in disaster. My learning point uh, or the story I like to tell about how complex some of these things can be is a very simple humanitarian aid piece, which was basically bringing glasses to those with visual impairments turned into a bit of a, a catastrophe or we brought complexity or, or added to the disaster. So what essentially occurred is in the process of pairing used glasses to those who needed them, you would do an eye exam. And part of an eye exam is administrating a medication which basically dilates the pupils. And in the process of doing this eye exam, we were using translators from the village who didn't really have a, a strong understanding of this medication and the Western medicine that was being used. And they saw this happening. They thought we were basically curing blindness. And that medication was stolen and, and distributed uh, as the cure for blindness. And unfortunately, that ended up with a lot of people with very dilated pupils walking around in a very sunny 
location. Uh, and we actually spent the rest of the day destroying our supplies of that medication because we had brought an inappropriate, simple, but complex solution to a, a very, very complex setting. So that really got me interested in emergency management in general. And I sort of followed the healthcare route from there, working in emergency medical services, uh, going to school with Royal Roads University focusing on uh, disaster management and then moving into healthcare disaster management. All right. So you don't cure blindness, but you do have a <laughs> ton of experience with organizations working together to address critical events. So let's say like, for example, there's, um, there's a major fire downtown at an apartment complex and, and you have the, the fire service on scene, the police addressing traffic and safety issues, EMS helping victims, transit people, organizing buses to get residents to alternate locations, social services, helping to sort out emergency accommodation and so on. When multiple public and private agencies collaborate to resolve a critical event, what are some of the most common barriers and challenges that you see today? Yeah, a large part of my job is working with municipalities and agencies towards that common goal of preparedness or working in real time to overcome some of these obstacles get, that get thrown up by emergencies and disasters. And I, I want to start by saying that I've been privileged to work with some incredibly dedicated, resourceful and innovative emergency managers across uh, the Calgary zone is where I'm mostly focused, but across Alberta and even Canada. And one of the things that struck me immediately is the differences in the way that organizations and even municipalities and, and provincial entities approach emergency management. There really is no right or wrong way, and there certainly is no standard way in which emergency management agencies and organizations are organized, how they're integrated into the municipal structures and provincial governance structures. So navigating the differences between organizations and agencies can be one of the, the biggest challenges. And understanding where the authority is held within each organization, I think, is one of the first steps in working with them. Sometimes um, you come across uh, agencies or agency members who have a role to play in disaster, but aren't as affiliated with the organization or aren't affiliated with the organization in the way that you need to get the results that uh, have to happen for the disaster. So seeking out who is actually in charge, first of all, or who has the organizational authority to act is one of the, the first barriers to remove. And it's actually interesting. Um, the way that agency representation is uh, managed in different emergency management organizations is is very different. And uh, the most successful ones I've seen are the collaborative model, where all of the agency reps are brought together to hear and collaborate with and have conversations with all of the other agency reps and members of the, the agency so that common understanding can be built. And that's probably one of the other common barriers that I see is that agencies or organizations come to the lead agency or another organization with a very specific tactical ask instead of sharing their problem. So for example, uh, I might go to emergency medical services and say, hey, I need three ambulances. Well, 
I'm not the right person to make that decision. I'm not the technical expert to make the decision on exactly what resource is needed. What I should do is go to EMS and say, hey, I'm having a problem with transporting these sick individuals between locations, whatever the situation is, share that problem with them and let them come up with the tactical solution. And I found that to be really effective in a number of cases because, one, it gives authority and some buy-in to the individuals that you're working with to come up with their solution. And two, it places the expertise in the right place. I have seen this again and again, where there's a very specific ask for very tactical resources. And the answer is almost always no or why do you ask? So share your problem. Don't ask for the tactical expertise right off the bat. Uh, Another common barrier that I see in, in community organizations is honestly just the understanding of the bureaucracy and navigating some of those jurisdictional boundaries. So the moment you have multiple jurisdictions, whether it be federal, provincial, municipal, or different organizations working together, there's that sort of underlying question of who's paying for this and who's in charge. And if that's not addressed up front, that can be a bit of a problem. Um, Or it needs to uh, be a different situation where you kind of pivot. And instead of asking who's in charge, you just ask, how are we going to work together? And I've actually seen some great success in the collaborative model during uh, disaster, not the command and control model, where again, you bring that shared problem to the table and through conversation, you piece out which what each agency can do. That works really well if you're working with established resources. I would say it doesn't work quite as well if you're trying to create new resources from the ground up or allocate new funding in, in many cases. So those are some of the common barriers that I see in working with municipalities. But I do need to stress that those are the the strengths of these individuals working in emergency management is navigating these barriers. These are the people who are used to doing something with nothing and then have been given the task of doing something new with resources that don't even exist. So let's delve in a little bit deeper into what's working well with networked communications between these groups and what isn't? Like when they have trouble communicating with each other, what can happen? Well, I think one of the issues with uh, communication is often simple language. I mean, communication is cited in every after action report as one of the things that needs to be improved. And quite often the perception that is gleaned from that is that there's something that's gone wrong with communication equipment or somebody didn't get an email or something like that. Most of the time it's person to person communication that didn't work because the wrong language was used. And uh, I know that I have to spend a little bit of extra time when I'm working with the municipalities kind of cleaning up my own language. I get so used to all these acronyms and healthcare speak. And I like to say I speak three languages, English, first responder and healthcare. (laughs) So I have to translate everything kind of back to English. Uh, And that's really an an important piece is is the plain language piece. It's very easy to alienate individuals if you start using acronyms. And it's actually very scary to ask in a, you know, a a teleconference of 100 people where you assume that everybody knows what that acronym means. It's, It's scary to ask, hey, can you just explain that acronym? Can you back up and tell us what you're actually talking about? But that question does need to be asked, and and basically collaborating in, in plain language might be step one. 
Step two, I think, is leveling the playing field a little bit. Again, I mentioned that one of the the hurdles is identifying who's in charge. Quite often, some of the liaison functions or the the engagement functions are initially sloughed off or, or given to people who don't actually have strong organizational authority. And that can be a real communication barrier because you're basically speaking through a middle person. And it can also be a, a big barrier to getting things done because everyone's time is quite valuable during disasters. And if you have someone there who can't speak on behalf of their agency or can't actually act on what's being talked about, then you might as well have not had the meeting. Well, maybe it's speaking the same language or leveling the, the, the playing field, but what are some of your most significant lessons learned over your career when it comes to working with these different groups during a critical event? Sure. So a couple of the huge successes I've, I've seen first off have been with agencies who are able to pivot quickly and that ability to pivot quickly and adapt to, to change and accept the new reality is so important. People like law enforcement and uh, I'll, I'll say Canada Task Force 2 because they're one of the groups that I work with, they're so quick to adapt and they're so used to change that they can be told that here, this is your new operating reality and Im- immediately switch. That ability to pivot and that ability to uh, adapt and, and embrace change quickly makes the difference between getting ahead of a disaster or falling behind. Uh, so early adopters definitely win during disaster. The other key lesson that I've learned is uh, it's a bit of a, a common saying, but it's it's not about us without us. And what I see often within municipalities or even within the organizations that I, I work is that there's this propensity to try and do planning for a group instead of with a group. So you plan for vulnerable populations without even engaging some of the vulnerable population groups, or you plan for evacuating pets without involving the the pet uh, shelters, or you plan for the elderly without actually engaging uh, with some of the, the organizations that support the elderly. And that's a, a bit of a trap, can certainly lead to ineffective plans or the paper plans that have no place in reality. So engage with your community, engage with the the people who are going to be impacted by your planning and better yet empower planning to come from that, uh, that community or that place, because you're never going to be able to hand them a product that they can use unless they've been part of developing that product. I think the the last learning that I've gleaned over the last uh, nine months in particular is that there's nobody behind the curtain. All these systems and processes and policies, they were just made by individuals who are doing the best with the resources that they had. So if something isn't fitting, uh, don't give up. Uh, just make three or four phone calls, get to the source of the source of truth and the person who created the policy. And nine times out of 10, it can be changed or an exception can be made. Uh, so don't stand behind the tape, burn through it. Where can listeners find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Sure. So I, I work with several organizations, but the one I think um, I, that is most accessible is uh, the Emergency Preparedness in Canada podcast. So please check us out at epicpodcast.ca. We are uh, similar in that we cover a lot of the emergency management topics that are, are current, relevant, and Canadian to emergency disaster managers of all levels. So we'd love to have you check us out and hopefully we can collaborate in the future. EpicPodcast.ca. Check it out, Grayson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll continue the Ready for Anything podcast in a moment. 
Major storms, cyber attacks, public health crises, domestic terrorism. Is your organization ready to face these kinds of events? With BlackBerry Ad Hoc, powered by AWS, your organization can deliver up-to-the-minute awareness, secure communications, and interagency collaboration before, during, and after a crisis. And with regional data centers around the world, AWS ensures that BlackBerry Ad Hoc is available and accessible when it's needed. The public and private sector organizations that trust BlackBerry Ad Hoc for critical event management aren't just saving time, resources, and property. They're saving lives. It's the easy, secure, and centralized approach to planning, managing, and remediating critical events. Be ready for what's next. Visit blackberry.com slash ad hoc. That's A-T-H-O-C. It's the Ready for Anything podcast. I'm Jeff Samet. Our second guest is Brian Swank. Now, Brian has been with BlackBerry Ad Hoc for the past eight years, working with some of the most demanding regulated government customers in the state, local and federal government space, including both the U.S. Department of State and U.S. Department of Justice. Before that, Brian spent 12 years at Nice Systems, First, as an engineer before moving into software sales in the public safety and federal markets. Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. Well, Brian, in addition to COVID-19, over the past year, there have been all kinds of events from political protests to natural disasters throughout North America and the world that have caused serious damage to public and private property, caused injuries, even death. When governments respond, whether it's at the state or provincial level or federal level, often it takes a coordinated effort across a whole range of agencies, organizations and partners. Yet, All too often we hear that these groups struggle to operate in a joined up unified way. In your experience, what are the challenges when it comes to collaboration and connection between different groups in a crisis? How well is this being done today generally? Generally, it's getting there. It's not something that is there yet. You know, when it comes to communication and times of crisis, you know, the primary challenges all typically revolve around what we commonly refer to as siloed communications where you know each responding organization has their own communication methodology you know when responding to any given crisis situation there's so many systems being used to communicate you know radio in car computer aided dispatch telephone sms mobile phones a myriad of apps you know all of which have their individual vendors they have their individual standards all have uh, their use cases that they they uh, tend to go to, you know. But true interoperability has been really elusive in the market, and uh, you know many of the communications are si- still siloed. Well, how are silos still happening, Brian? I mean, I've worked at companies that addressed that issue years ago, and on matters of far less importance. Is it money? Is it uh, red tape? Is it, uh, I want to be the most important voice in the room. My way is is the right way. What is it? I think it's a combination of all the above. You know, I, I sat on some P25 committees. This is probably 10 years, going back 10 years. And everyone was sitting at the table. You had the Motorola's and the Harris's of the world all sitting at the same table, kind of devising this quote standard. But there were always intricacies that 
one would have a patent on on AES uh, a type of uh, encryption. Another would have a patent on some sort of uh, of different uh, software. It, it is some of it's money, some of it's proprietary, some some of it is is patents. And you know they they all want to do the best for the customers, but they want their customers to come to them. That's not the best thing for interoperable communications. And we're just talking about radio at this point. There's so many different types of, of communications that all need to be addressed. If I'm just talking radio, that's really a driven by EMS, by police, by fire, and they all have different systems. They all have different ways of using the systems. Some are digital, some are analog, and so on. But that's just radio. You, you have other entities that don't have it. it the, the typical provincial or a federal employee does not have a radio. They have a phone, they have a desk phone, they have a desktop computer or a laptop, but they don't have a radio. They must be reached to make this true interoperable communication. And, and that just simply does not happen at this time. You have to have a way of actually pulling and, and pulling all of those different uh, mechanisms for reaching recipients together. And that's, that is a tough, a tough pull at this point. Well, what kind of fallout can happen when interconnectivity between these groups isn't done well? You know, the lack of connectivity and communication, solid communication really lead to a, you know, lack of a common operating picture and lack of holistic situational awareness. You know, when agencies lack the understanding of, of not just their assets, but everyone else's assets as well, you know, it, it, they need that true all interagency view of the world. If they don't have that view, they make poor decisions. They make short-sighted decisions. They make decisions not knowing what every other the, the other arms are doing, and you know, with respect to crisis response, that can delay the resolution and put real people in harm's way unnecessarily just because I didn't know they were they existed. I didn't know where they were, and it really causes chaos when I'm trying to. To respond to to a situation, you know, consider a situation where you have an active shooter that's reported in a government building somewhere, and that government building houses multiple government agencies. You know, with information silos, each of those residents' agencies may uh, send an indication to their constituency that something is wrong and expect information back, but they'll receive. You know, each one of those different constituencies may receive different information about where the shooter is, when it's happening, where they are, and what to do in case they are in harm's way. You know, the information would be disseminated at different times, different responses. Uh, they're they're just it's it's all a disjointed information a push, but it's also disjointed information coming back that you really can't report on in any cohesive way. That's that's really that's where the problem of of lack of interconnectivity begins. Well, on the flip side, what kind of results can be achieved when they do connect quickly and effectively? You know, going back to the the active shooter example I just gave, you know, having a method of of unifying bidirectional communications through the throughout the crisis really allows you know all involved the in, uh, agencies to receive consistent, timely 
accurate information. That's what we're talking about here. You know, any responses can be standardized. Any messaging can be standardized. Any content that I'm going to push uh, can be standardized so that everyone is seeing the same thing. Everybody was responding to the same thing. You know, an example, you know, in addition to the agencies that may be resident in the building, there's other peripheral agencies or involved parties that may that may need communication as well. Local services, police, EMS, fire, SWAT, as well as commercial players. Someone owns that building. And if that's a commercial entity, they should be involved in this communication as well. So bringing everyone together that has a stake in this, it's all about providing you know, and receiving consistent, timely information for the entire group, not just my, my entity, my siloed entity. Well, the role that technology can play in all of this, like, Brian, what would be the very best use of technology? You know, in the past, most most agency personnel only had uh, purpose-built technology in communication devices. You know, when I'm, I'm talking about police and EMS and fire had mobile radios and in-car computers, CAD, CAD computers. You know, most personnel uh, for an agency had desktop computers and maybe desktop phone and, you know, and so on. Now, in addition to our laptops and desktops and tablets, we all have this little high-powered all-in-one communication device in our pockets. You know, that that is really where, uh, where the advance is, has gone. And that device should be leveraged and unifying communications in all types of emergencies. Everyone has one. And everyone has one that works with Pretty much, you know, I'll go uh, iOS or Android here, but they all work and they can all talk to to one another. On top of that, you layer geolocation and mapping support by those devices, you know, GPS location, things of that sort. You know, that adds an entire dimension to the communications. Now, I'm not just talking about getting information or textual information to them. It now supports, I can receive location information. I can target by location based on the location chip in that phone. I can get information I can target in terms of of groups within a given location and use map layers from their, you know, their uh, entities, um, you know, G- GPS or GIS uh, group. So lots of different information. It's, again, not just about text. It's not just about the actual communication. It's about the content um, that's supported by these, you know, these little computers that everyone has. Mm. You know, now that we we not only know a user status in real time, but we know where they are. We know where other users are in relation to them and, you know, where our important assets are. All this information makes us better or allows us to make better decisions in high stress situations. And we're trying to simplify all of this so that those decisions in those high stress situations are easier to make. Well, maybe it's uh, the the matter with which we communicate and, and the content that's included, but what key tips or advice would you share with anyone at the provincial, state, or federal level who may be looking to improve the way different organizations can come together to achieve better outcomes in critical events? I would have three basically simple tips for anyone considering this. I'd say first is assess what communication devices all potential participants commonly use. If possible, 
find a communication device or devices that are common to all. Again, going back to radio, not everybody has radio. Not everybody has uses uh, Zoom. Not everybody uses you know those, those different communication devices. Find something that everybody uses, whether it be email, which most people have, whether it do SMS, which most people have, whether it be a, an app that can be downloaded on the phone uh, via the app store. You know, find something that everybody uses. If someone uh, uses a, a siloed device, try not to use that. Use a uh, something that can be unified com- communication device. So second, I would leverage, you know, what you have and maximize pathways. If email and SMS and cell phone and mobile apps are available, use all of them. Don't use one of them. Use all. If you limit it to, I ju- I'm just going to send an SMS and that SMS doesn't go through for whatever reason, I've now discounted these other options that are there. If they are options, send it out, blast it out on every communication device you can. Don't limit yourself to one and then another and then another. Just do it all at one time. Get the information out. That's the most important. And I think lastly, you know, don't forget the human element element here. You know, develop operational workflows that support unified communications. You know, for example, don't develop work, workflows or messaging or responses that don't apply to a portion of the intended recipients. Don't use technical jargon or or uh, used by a fireman or or you know office personnel that the other won't won't understand. Use generalized information to get it out there. The point here in in these communications and unified communication is to get concise, to get consistent information that's understandable to everyone. Technology will handle the unify handle unifying the communications part, the delivery. But if the content is no good, the system won't be used. So you want the system to be used in crisis. Brian, where can listeners find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Brian Swank on LinkedIn, bswank at blackberry.com. I am always working and uh, I'm glad to take any questions that anyone might have. Well, Brian, we'll be in touch then. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. We'll wrap up Ready for Anything in a moment. When keeping employees safe is your number one priority, you need a communications approach you can trust. That's why organizations around the world choose BlackBerry Ad Hoc powered by AWS for critical event management and communication. It's the proactive way to deliver accurate information directly to your people on everything that affects their well-being, from routine events to severe weather to health emergencies. Employees can stay informed on public health or safety procedures, respond to wellness surveys, or let you know if they're in trouble. Secure targeted communications can be delivered to specific employee groups and departments, ensuring the right message gets to all the right people right when it matters. And with regional data centers around the world, AWS ensures that BlackBerry Ad Hoc is available and accessible when it's needed. Save time, resources, property, and lives. Visit blackberry.com slash ad hoc. That's A-T-H-O-C today. Thanks for joining the Ready for Anything podcast. If you haven't already, check out our first two episodes on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeff Sambit. Stay safe. Thanks for listening.